Well, thank you. Um, one, thank you, Joy, for sharing that, because I know it, just as an aspect of what the body of Christ can be, why we need more people than just, actually more types of people with more types of experiences and backgrounds and cultures and visions, because I can say, for the most part, I would have small prayers. What I focus on, what I see, what I hope for is usually tangible, it's close, um, it's that next step, it's a developmental process. Rarely am I so audacious to say, the king of the world, the creator of all things, would actually be concerned with all things. Like, no, God, you're concerned with maybe next Tuesday. Next Tuesday is in your scope. So, Joy, thank you for reminding us that it's the call of the creator to all things, to say as we go forward, and I think that's a beautiful way to step into this next, the series that we're in, which is the Gardeners of Grace, where we actively say, what does it look like for us to actually cultivate and to raise, to prune, to grow grace around us through the audacious acts of prayer, through the ways in which we can say that beauty and grace is tangible, it's within reach if we become gardeners of it. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Glenn. I'm honored to be part of the pastoral team here. And FOS is a noble and rooted community experiencing God through reimagining a faith that is reduced to love by creating space for everyone to find hope, beauty, and purpose in the story of Jesus. As Joyce eloquently said, to realize that the same blood runs within us all, that we are family. Part of our journey in reimagining faith that is reduced to love is discovered while we learn the praxis which moves us from a power position to presence, from coercion to trust, or as we called the series, we learn how to become gardeners. Tonight, we're going to focus on Galatians 2, 11 to 21, where the original followers of Jesus feel the tensions involved in becoming gardeners, because each one of them had a vision for what the community could be, and through acts of power, possessions, withdrawal, and coercion, they tried to intentionally shape that community by force. And it actually took a moment of remembering its presence, not power, its gardening, not just clear-cutting the force that brings life. So if this is your first time hearing me preach, I'd like to let you know what to expect. We're going to sit in the text by reading the passage. Then we'll walk through the text where I offer some technical movements that will give depth to what we've read. At the end, we're going to rift from the text where we ask the most important question of what we do tonight, which is how will I live out of this passage? Because if we reflect, if we see, and if we see a more beautiful way to be, it only becomes tangible and real as we enter the act of becoming, that we move towards that hope as we start breaking up the ground to garden. So I'm going to read through the passage. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles, but when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish traditions? 
We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Now take three breaths to pause and just sit in that text. So as we start to step through some of the technical points, what's one of the chief things driving the passage and actually most of the epistles in the New Testament? It is the struggle to rebuild a community united around Jesus from, our past, from the passage we just read to the climax of Galatians 3. We see the movement where he says, Jews and Gentiles, and then in 3, 24, 29, he takes it all the way to a higher extent. So that the law was our guardian until Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, this faith has come. We are no longer under a guardian. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, there is, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ. This means the old markers that he was using, because for the Jewish mind at the time, for the writing of Paul, the world was easily divided. You had those who were Jewish and those who were non-Jewish. It's almost if you've seen my big fat Greek wedding. The father in the movie would always either say everything is Greek or not Greek. And this is how we understand the beauty of the word. And I loved it because there's one scene where he said, we know one thing, not Greek. He said, what is it? Like kimono. He goes, hmm, kimono. It's like koma, which is Greek for cold. And what do you put on when you're cold? A robe. Kimono is Greek. But you see, we, we have these matrices that we, we put out. It creates meaning. It helps us make sense of the world around us. But Paul says neither Jew nor Greek, because when he takes it from his first notion within Israel, the Jewish and the Gentiles, the second time he takes it to the notion of the whole Roman world. The first time he says, we are Jews, not the Gentile other. And then the climax in 324, he says, but just so you know, there's no longer Jew or Gentile. That doesn't exist anymore. But there's no longer the social economic positions of slave or free. That doesn't exist anymore. So there's not even the, the differences that we make socially because you had certain roles expected of you if you were a woman or a man. I know we are so woke these days that there's no such thing as gender roles and norms and that everyone just gets to be themselves. But sometimes there's still expectations based on gender. At this point, Paul says, you don't realize those don't actually exist. And why? Because Christ. So this means the old markers of us, old identities that tell us who is in and who is out, cannot dictate the new belonging. Because as 2.15 said, we who are Jews by birth, not sinful Gentiles, 
And then he said, and the rest of the Roman world. So the entire world that Paul could imagine is the whole Roman world. In their minds, that stretched from end to end of the known continents. In his mind, that was audacious as Joy's prayer to say, the God who could see the whole globe. So these markers helped them make sense of their world and clearly outlined who they could be trusting. N.T. Wright puts it this way for the conflict. Just as circumcision is a symbol which speaks of family identity who's in, so is table fellowship. Circumcision and table fellowship were a part of the same issue. Whether or not Gentiles were really full members of the family. So when it says Cephas or Peter sees the Gentiles, lives like the Gentiles, but then when other people who know him come in there and he removes himself, the question at hand is not just the point of circumcision, not just the point of sharing food, but whether you are actually clean enough, good enough, right enough, whether you belong to us. In separating, he made a declaration that they actually do not belong. And this sets the tension because as people learn the effects of writing a new ending to their story, rather than converting to a different narrative, they come under tension. Because for Peter to give up his faith and go to a different story would actually be an easier change than to say the way he lived his whole life, the way he knew the whole narrative, circumcision and table rules were how you knew you were a good Jew. And they said, actually, they don't matter. People matter. In the same way for us, because we probably don't have those same distinctions, but you might say things like, what makes you a good Christian or what makes you a good certain kind of Christian? You might say, this is the true way of a Jesus follower. And then you have an immediate list that you get to say, if you check off these boxes, you're with us. These were those sacred boxes from his tradition that were the promises of the covenant. But in 2.16, it says... But if not through, in the translation we read, it said faith in Jesus. This can actually go one of two ways because um, for the grammar of it, both ways work. But I believe the way I'm about to share, um, it's followed by the NRSV, um, the NET, the ESV, um, into right. So there's a lot of people who go this way. It says it's not for my faith in Jesus, but through the faithfulness of Jesus. He said, and because of this, we have placed our faith in Jesus. So because of Jesus' faithfulness, that rewrote the ending to the story that we already thought we knew how it ended, we now put our faith, or another way to say it, is that we trust Jesus' ending, which is why we don't abandon the table. The new ending is realized as we make room for every category of people because we are not trusting in ourselves to believe in something to be. We're trusting in the faithfulness of Jesus to be present and to build the community. And if we're trusting in Jesus' presence and faithfulness to build the community, we will trust that those who Jesus brings in, every gender, every color, every category of understanding that we have of ourselves will be present and welcome because we trust Jesus to be the one to invite to the table. And his faithfulness will build and shape it. So the community that we cultivate, the community that we live into today, anticipates how we see the story ending. Peter was caught between labels that he'd been taught throughout his tradition and throughout his childhood. He knew there was Jews and Gentiles. He knows there was in and out, there was clean and unclean. And based upon this, the ending of the story was when God shows up, the unclean would be gotten rid of and the clean would inherit everything. 
when Jesus shows up and says, these categories are no longer good, leave them at the door, because when you come in here, all are one in Christ. No matter your background, no matter your self-identities, in this moment, he said, all are one in Christ. So we had to let go of every category he knew for being a good person and say, in this moment, around this table, with you in front of me, we are one in Christ. And so if we see the future as dangerous, if we see the future as threatening, as unstable, we don't know where it's going because the questions people ask today are not the questions I was raised with, then we might start to react like Peter did in fear, pulling back and separating ourselves, saying, that is a step too far for me. Christ could not be there. Therefore, I must remove myself. But if we see the future as a reaction to Jesus' faithfulness, we can loosen our grip we will stop being concerned with being community gatekeepers and discover life by sitting at the table to participate in the community. The questionable and the misguided community, the imperfect and the impractical community, the unknown whether it is clean or dirty or right or wrong community. Yes, the holy dysfunctional, yet Holy Spirit-inspired sacred community. Seeing these tensions in place lets us look at the conflict between Paul and Peter better because I intentionally started at the end of Paul's rationale for the conflict so that we can then step into what they really thought about. Conflict came from different views of the story's ending. As I said, for Peter, it was going to be about segregating. It was going to be about sifting. When he saw the people who could make decisions socially, he said, to truly have the right ending, I have to separate from you. However, Paul says that he rebuked him to his face, or another way to say it is he corrected him. Yet, correction in the story is not punitive, nor an end unto itself. Rather, it is an open invitation back to the table. Paul's correction would make no sense if Peter just had to pay the price for what he had done. It only concludes the tension, it only relieves the pain once Peter comes back to the table. So as we see in this text, with, even with Paul's very emotive words, because remember, Paul is not soft-spoken. He doesn't kind of hide in the back. And in one verse in this, he gets so worked up about the notion of circumcision. He says, you know what I really hope for you? I hope the guy with the knife slips with the blade and chops the whole thing off. He was a passionate, controversial, if you like the Enneagram, probably an eight kind of thinker. If there was a problem, he's fighting you over it. But his goal was to bring Peter back. Sometimes I disagree with how he practices for his goal, but his goal was to bring the people back. The offense that we see was Peter removing himself from the ones who could threaten his purity. Because we see in 12 and 13, Paul says, before certain men came, he used to eat with the Gentiles And as N.T. Wright pointed out, that was a matter of acceptance. That was a matter of belonging. That was a matter of when you saw me eating, you knew that the people at my table were welcome to buy me and associated to my family, which means they could bring shame and they could bring honor upon me, but it didn't matter because they're at my table. To actually offend them was for you to do a direct offense against me because in ancient societies, for you to offend, to insult, or to come against somebody else at a person's table was for you to offend and to insult, to attack the one who invited people to the table. So when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles. 
He was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. He was afraid of the ones who said, here's how we've always done it. Here's the way we have known we were honorable. Here's the way we know we were good. Here is the direct marker of the observant Orthodox Jewish man. And it said that him as a leader actually drew other people into hypocrisy. Now the notion for hypocrisy here, as you've probably heard before, if you've been around anyone doing Greek with this, it's the word used in ancient Greece to be a play actor. And the point is, in knowing where he was supposed to go, he started to play a different part because he was too scared of where he was supposed to go. He wasn't yet convinced of where he was going. That ending of the story was too fresh. So he fell back to the part he knew how to play. Paul embraced conflict before accepting factions. Most of us will cause factions before stepping into conflict, especially you Canadians. I'm American, and the one thing that really threw me moving here is y'all are so polite. I ran into somebody with a shopping cart when I first moved here on accident. The guy turned around and apologized to me. I was like, I I completely hit you because I was playing on my phone, and you're acting like you offended me. Like, that was the part I have a hard, still have a hard time wrapping my mind around, because in America, we fight because that's just what we do. But as you see here, to embrace conflict before factions actually values, it risks, it gambles for the community you're a part of. So in 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, and what is this truth? It was a community open enough for every identity, category, and known part of the Roman world to say, I can have place, I can have position, I can belong at your table no matter what shame or disrepute it puts you in. That you would value my presence over my ability to add value to you. Anything less than a radical call to join the table in this passage, regardless of who's present, shows how far we see grace extending. As Paul said at the end, Peter's rejecting, because remember, this is being, he is saying this moment to the Galatians who's having the tension so that they could see what happened with Peter, who is a known leader and pillar of the community, because he's saying even the leaders, even the ones you thought were strong, even the ones who are given direction, sometimes misstep. He said, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. So what's this saying? See, righteousness sometimes we put to a moral coding. When we think righteousness, if we say that person's righteous, we usually have a lift of good things they do. In this part, righteousness is actually saying your place, your right, your celebrated position within the community. So to be declared righteous was to be declared a whole person within the community, which is why the righteousness through Jesus guaranteed your spot at the table. So, for us to step away when Peter said, actually, no, this is too far now. Somebody else is seeing me. This is too far because I could be seen as unclean. I could be seen as the wrong kind of man. Paul went as far as to say that is setting aside the grace of God. So if you're going to take notes, um, we move through the text. We're going to be going where in riffing from the text. I just add my lens because I try to give us some some working so that because the the text is sacred to me now we get to have some fun and say how do we move from this though point one we actively participate in community as we trust jesus's wisdom 
enough to call people back to the community we're uncertain of. It kind of reminds me of, um, I work for a family business, and as a family business, they're not always sure of outsiders. When I was first brought there, they gave me very clean, distinct rules to how the, the job worked. The son was my boss, everyone else was a coworker like me. Being naive, I said, of course that's how it worked, because family systems are so clear. But then the mom came back to work, and suddenly the son was my boss, unless the mom was my boss, who sometimes undercut the son. But then the son would come back and be my boss. It's like, okay, two people, I can work here. Then the father came in, and it turned out actually the father could override everybody. So the father was my boss, the mom occasionally was my boss, and the son, when no one else was around, was also my boss. And it turned into this point that the question was, does anybody trust the other person to run it? No one could actually give me position there because I was suspect, I wasn't part of the family, and they would often mention, especially when I was first there, that you don't seem to see this as a family business. And what they meant was, I don't see it as an extension of my family's business. And that made me suspect. They couldn't trust the father's wisdom in hiring me or the son's wisdom in running it. So then everybody had to be a gatekeeper for the rules and rhythms of the job. In the same way, when we trust Jesus' wisdom, we are not going to all try to be gatekeepers. We can trust that Jesus brings people in, the kind, the character, the quality of the people in, and we can celebrate their position here because it's through the faithfulness of Jesus that they've been declared righteous, and to be declared righteous is actually to say that you are a full, healthy, beloved member within the community. And this, I'd say, so far as this was outside of Peter's understanding because circumcision and food was actually central hubs to the way he understood relationship with God due to the Holy Bible itself. It explicitly says these are the good things to do. And then it comes and says those don't have to be worried about anymore. For us, our conflicts can arise when we see people doing things and we say, but the Bible explicitly says. If Jesus' faithfulness declares them righteous, says they have valued position here, then we must not throw away the grace of God so cheaply and say, I will celebrate, I will applaud, and I will see your humanity as we gather around the table because we are one in Christ. Point two, we actively mature through community as we embrace conflict for inclusion rather than control. Now, often I've thought that conflict was a zero-sum game. If you and I had conflict, then it would be something that said, one of us has to win. And what winning means, if I win, you must lose. And we see conflict as punitive. When you do something wrong, I'm going to rectify the situation so we will have conflict. When you see this around children, they, they quickly learn, is the conflict worth the punishment? But that's not the way it was used here. Because in 11 to 12, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he began to draw back from other people. The conflict wasn't punitive. It wasn't harm to make Peter acknowledge his wrong. It was an act of protecting the marginalized in the community because the people at risk in the community were the Gentiles who didn't know if they had full place in it. 
and the conflict came towards those who were secure and settled. As I've seen change within the church and even in my own life, what I've seen time and time again with God is the people who are most upset at God, the people that have the hardest time seeing a new ending to the story, are the one that the story's worked for the entire time. If you think the narrative of the group means you're amazing, and suddenly someone says, it's bigger, there's another voice, there's another chapter to be written, that can threaten you. Because what you may hear is everything I've sacrificed for is not as valuable as what I sacrificed for. Maybe I'm at a loss now because I didn't do it right. But actually, it's a call back to the community. It's a realization that as we expand, as we grow, as the kingdom of God becomes bigger, stronger, more vibrant, like a kaleidoscope of things that we can never actually see in one sitting, you will be uncomfortable. Everything you thought you knew, just like Peter, who knew that to honor the covenant meant that the kingdom would come, he had to learn. There was another way for the Gentiles to be included, which we should be thankful for, because as far as I am aware, all of you are Gentiles. At least I know I am. So when it comes to this, our place was included within the tradition and the kingdom that we hope to celebrate here and now because Paul protected the marginalized and said you cannot so quickly set them aside. So in our participation in community, what it must look like is that we will have conflict, but we will have conflict for the right reason. If one of us is kicking out a part of the group, we will have conflict to say you will not so easily set apart the grace of God by saying this type of person and I don't care if it's liberal, political, LGBTQ, if it's any form of social economic or identity, we say we will not set apart the grace of God which brought them here. And in bringing them here, the conflict we'll have is to make sure that each of us who have blind spots we're unaware of, because I know I do, I need your eyes to help me see other things, because there's things that I cannot be aware of. I can only see from my experience, my experience as a cisgender, heteronormative, white male in North America, raised in tradition that always celebrated me. You would think that Jesus actually reflected me. If you see the paintings we hung, he was a beauty pageant contestant with a flowing sash and the most alabaster skin you've ever seen. It was porcelain, it was beautiful, and he looked just like me with glowing blue eyes. Except he was you know, born in the Middle East, probably had a tan and a little bit darker complexion and hair. But that's not the Jesus we celebrated. So when it comes to this, we will have the conflict as we make sure to expand our view of Jesus and the presence. So point three, the true gospel always has room and hope for Peter's return. We'll participate in community as we maintain the hope that those who get unsettled and try to pull away when we call them back, they will find room to be celebrated when they're back because it's not just about the marginalized. It's about making sure they're protected and there's room, but it's also making sure that all of us know that our place is guaranteed because of Jesus' faithfulness. So because of that, I still have place here, even though I don't represent any marginalized community. I still get a place to be honored here because I have a passion for God and Jesus' faithfulness wouldn't let me go. So as we go forward, and Kareem, if you'd want to come up, I just wanted to say a prayer, a modified prayer of St. Bridget as we step into this time of reflection. Oh, Jesus Christ, eternal sweetness to those who love you, joy surpassing all joy and desire, salvation and hope to all sinners, who has proved that you have no greater desire than to be among humanity. 
even assuming human nature at the fullness of time for the love of humanity. So now let us learn to love who our love loves by joining Jesus at the table with anyone and everyone who Jesus would invite us to meet.